Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and we're thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now is the exhibition Beauty's Legacy, Gilded Age Portraits in America. This is also your final weekend to see the Armory Show at 100 Modern Art and Revolution, which closes tomorrow evening. And I encourage everyone to see it. It's, it's quite beautiful, if you haven't already, or to visit it one last time before this incredible collection of art departs. And just to note, since the admission to the museum is separate from the program, we kindly request members as well, just to get a ticket. It's time ticketing at the admissions desk um, after the program. So we would appreciate that very much. We expect a lot of people to come this last weekend. So I always ask, and I always put my glasses on when I ask, how many members are with us this morning? I don't see any non-members. Okay. But if there's one hiding in the crowd, we invite you to become a member. You get great benefits, free admission to the museum, discounts on most of our public programs, and just speak with our colleagues when you leave today after the program. And before introducing the program and our speakers, I, we always ask, please turn off your cell phones, or any electronic devices at this time. Today's program, the United States, oh, another question um, for our speakers' benefit. How many people were at the film last night? Okay, a few people. So when our speakers talk, this, this morning program follows the film. It's independent of the film, but they may be making some references to the film. And um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but they'll explain what they're talking about, so you'll get the picture. Today's program, the United States Constitution, Congress, and the media will last an hour and a half and include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing mics in the aisles. And we ask that you do this so the speakers on stage and everyone in the audience can hear you. And we also are recording it for a pod, an audio podcast that will be posted on our website so the whole world can hear you. And following the program, books by our speakers will be available for purchase in our museum store. However, there will not be a book signing after the program today. This program is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I also want to recognize and thank our New York Historical Society trustee with us today, Lon Jacobs, and all the Chairman's Council members with us for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a hand. <clears throat> we are so pleased to welcome Kenji Yoshino to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Yoshino is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU School of Law. Prior to this, he taught at Yale Law School from 1998 to 2008, where he served as Deputy Dean and the inaugural Guido Calabrese Professor of Law. 
Mr. Yoshino has been published broadly in scholarly journals such as the Harvard Law Review, Stanford Law Review, and the Yale Law, Re Law Journal, as well as in publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Slate. He is the author of Covering, Covering the Hidden Assault on Our Civil Rights and is currently at work on his third book, which analyzes the federal litigation over same-sex marriage. We're thrilled to welcome Robert Post to New York Historical Society. Mr. Post is Dean and Saul and Lillian Goldman Professor of Law at Yale Law School. Before moving to Yale, he taught at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. In addition to his work at Yale, Dean Post publishes regularly in legal journals and other publications and has written and edited numerous books, including Democracy, Expertise, Academic Freedom, a First Amendment jurisprudence for the modern state. Dean Post is a member of the American Philosophical Society and the American Law Institute and is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. We are also delighted to welcome Linda Greenhouse, the Knight Distinguished Journalist in Residence and Joseph Goldstein Lecturer in Law at Yale Law School. Ms. Greenhouse teaches courses related to the work of the Supreme Court and is a fellow of the Law School's Information Society Project. Ms. Greenhouse assumed this position in January 2009 following a 40-year career at the New York Times. Ms. Greenhouse was the Times Supreme Court correspondent for 30 of her 40 years at the paper and she won a Pulitzer Prize in journalism in 1998. She currently writes a bi-weekly column on the Supreme Court and the law for the New York Times Online. She's the author of numerous books, including, most recently, The Supreme Court, A Very Short Introduction. And now, please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. how many people saw the film last night. I'd like to ask how many people have ever seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Okay. <laughs> oh, good. Because okay. we do want to play off uh, some, <coughs> some of the themes of the book. But let me start our discussion of the Constitution, Congress, and the media with a little anecdote, recent story. So there's a little sundry shop uh, near my apartment in New Haven that I often stop in and buy little sundries. And the guy behind the counter knows that I teach at Yale Law School. So the other morning, a couple weeks ago, he said to me, uh, you teach at the law school. You're smart. What do you think about all these executive orders that the president is issuing? And isn't it a threat to our separation of powers that the president is issuing all these executive orders? And I was kind of taken aback by this, you know, it's quarter to eight in the morning, this question from behind the counter in this sundry shop. And I tried to explain to him that actually... The president's numerous executive orders were actually a smaller number than his predecessors and so on and so on. And he was not satisfied with that answer. And I left kind of puzzled. And I realized, of course, what this reflected was this man got his, his information about what's happening in the country from Fox News, certainly. <laughs> and he had, which I assume doesn't apply to too many people in this audience, but <laughs> not for nothing did I live... 10 years on the Upper West Side, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, this actually raises a serious question and one that the film also framed, but kind of presciently, is that our, our media-driven culture today has created uh, competing sets of realities. 
and there doesn't seem to be a bridge through them. Now, in the film last night, and this is not a film talk, but, but those of you who, who may recall, uh, one of the themes of the film is the role of the media in creating a, a reality and different visions of reality. That One of the climatic scenes in the film is when uh, buckets, baskets, huge baskets of Western Union telegrams expressing the public's opinion on the controversy at the heart of the film are brought into the floor of the Senate. I mean, it's not too realistic, but it's very dramatic. And so the question is, and, and assertedly these telegrams are in opposition to what our hero is trying to do. So the question is, uh, do these really reflect true public opinion or public opinion generated by the media mogul who's the bad guy at the heart of the film or of false public, what's true and what's false? And what's the media's role in sorting out the two? I've been very interested in recent years in what you might call the, the he, he said, she said version of journalism, where uh, it's a journalism of assertion. So one person says X and the other person says non-X, and they're both quoted, and the readers just left scratching their heads. And the journalist, uh, in the name of objectivity and, and journalistic ethics, is really... Uh, either lazy or disabled from using his or her actual knowledge of the event or the issue to inform the reader as to which of these two countervailing assertions is actually closer to, to reality. And of course, you know, one can argue there's no such thing as absolute truth, but some things that we hear are a lot closer to it than other things. So I just wanted to frame that uh, as we start our conversation as the, the kind of media uh, piece to it, and uh, I think I'll let Kenji weigh in now on some broader themes. Yeah, this very much follows on what Linda said. So first let me say it's such a pleasure to be with you um, this morning, and thank you for joining us on this wintry Saturday morning to have this conversation. When I looked at the theme of today's conversation of the Constitution, Congress, and the media, the case that immediately came to mind was uh, the Dickerson case, of which more uh, in a moment. But the echo um, that I heard when I uh, saw that title was actually a much earlier one, earlier even than Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which was actually Plato's Republic. So I think about Plato's Republic, uh, and I think about book three, where Plato banishes a poet from the city. And this leaves a question, right? Because Aristotle doesn't love the poet, but lets the poet stay. Plato loves the poet, but forces the poet to leave after crowning his head with wool and anointing him with oil, right? And so the question is, why do you um, force the thing that you love so much to leave? And the answer is not that the poet is uh, so marginalized and so... Um, different from the ordinary course of politics in the splendid city that Plato is imagining, but rather because the, Plato, uh, the poet is too similar to the legislators. If you follow uh, the Platonic corpus to the end, what we see in the laws is the Plato, poets return to the city, and the uh, statesmen say, what you don't understand is that we ourselves are poets, and the poem we are creating is the state. And so if you can make your doctrines conform to ours, you can be admitted into the city. But if not, why would we allow a competing band of magicians you know, to come into the city and to undercut our doctrine? So uh, philosophers like uh, Alexander Nehemas have said that the 
really important thing to understand about this platonic parable is that the present-day equivalent <coughs> of the poet is not, you know, Louise Gluck or, you know, the uh, whoever, Lucy Brock Broido or whoever the uh, poet of your choice is today. It's actually the mass media uh, because a poet in Plato's time was not this uh, bellatristic, ornamental figure who was doing things that were at the margins of culture, but rather was a primary purveyor of information to the society. And so it's much closer to what Linda's talking about with regard to being the New York Times or CNN or MSNBC or, or Fox News uh, today. And so I think that when we get that understanding, uh, that is a very uh, dire right, reminder of how potent the platonic parable is for our times. And we have to decide what relationship our splendid city, our ideal city, is going to have uh, to this mass media. Which brings me, and I'll uh, do this very quickly, to the Dickerson case, which is a 2000 case, uh, which Linda's also written very eloquently about, which I raised at Dean Post's chair lecture, uh, because uh, his father was uh, very involved in Hollywood, I should say. So it was kind of an homage to uh, his um, background as well. But in the Dickerson case, what you have is really a competition between Congress and the media over constitutional meaning. What's at issue in that case is whether or not the Miranda warning, of which, with which you are all familiar, has a constitutional dimension. Right? That was the issue before the Supreme Court. And Congress had tried to supersede the Miranda warning by saying, we think that the Miranda warning is too protective of criminal defendants, so we want to go back to a more generalized autonomy standard. And what the court ultimately ruled, 7-2, with Chief Justice Rehnquist writing the majority opinion, was that the Miranda warning did have a constitutional dimension. But one of the reasons that he gave was really telling. He said, the Miranda warning has become so much a part of our national culture that we couldn't get rid of it even if we wanted to. So notice that this is not Congress as a co-equal constitutional interpreter. This is Hollywood as a co-equal constitutional interpreter. Essentially what the chief is saying is that there have been too many episodes of law and order <laughs> for us to be able to get rid of the Miranda warning now. So this is a very, very um, scary, in some ways, uh, notion, uh, depending on how one looks at the media. If we believe that the media was telling the truth all the time, we might be much more confident about this. Right? In fact, many people celebrated the fact that there was a populist uprising for the Miranda warning that had entrenched itself as constitutional meaning over time. But in the world that we live in that Linda just described, where people just choose their own realities and either watch MSNBC or they watch Fox News, right? what the media is telling the court may be extremely troublesome. So that when we see, for example, Justice Scalia talking about the Cornhusker kickback, which is not actually in the Affordable Care Act, but is certainly one of the Fox News talking points, that might be much more troubling than the Miranda warning case that I just described. I, I didn't know Kenshi was going to talk about Dickerson, one of my all-time favorite cases. I, I want to let Robert weigh in, too. But just as a, as a kind of footnote to that, so Chief Justice Rehnquist was a very smart man. And when he said that the Miranda warnings had become part of our national culture. So what did he mean by the Miranda warnings? And I think by 2000, he meant what the public would not have been aware of, or, and, and neither would the media necessarily, but the Miranda warnings, as the court led by him, has spent a couple of decades watering down. So he ultimately, in, in reaffirming Miranda, was very comfortable that he was reaffirming the Miranda that he had, in, in effect, uh, kind, kind of created. 
So uh, it would have been a true statement, and maybe I even said this in my article back then, I hesitate to go back and look at it, that, you know, Miranda against Arizona was reaffirmed today by the U.S. Supreme Court, rebuffing Congress's effort to undercut it. But of course, it wasn't. It was something different than the court in 1964. Is that Miranda? Whatever. 66. 66. Yeah. You know, had had uh, maybe thought it was doing. So, so what um, you've heard Linda and Kenji eloquently. Uh, say is uh, something that uh, James Madison observed uh, when the nation started. He said, in every democracy, public opinion is sovereign. Public opinion is the ultimate force of legitimation and governance and uh, political authority in a country that purports to be um, a democracy. And David Hume, uh, writing uh, 50 years before Madison, had said, it's actually the source of political authority uh, in any country because the sovereign is only the sovereign and the many could only could always overwhelm the sovereign unless they had, uh, unless they believed in the legitimacy of the sovereign. And what keeps them from doing that? The public opinion that the sovereign is legitimate. So, public opinion is the baseline from which we deal when we talk about any form of governmental legitimacy, whether it's the Constitution, which is not simply the text that's under glass in Washington, D.C. It's this, it's what we think it is, ultimately, and what we think it is is a product of this public opinion, or Congress, of course, which is always trying to listen to public opinion and to comply with it. Uh, And uh, so we might spend a few minutes here thinking about what public opinion is, especially in light of the movie. The idea that there is a thing called public opinion is a relatively recent invention in the history of the world. The notion of public opinion emerges in the 17th century, and it emerges in coffee houses, and it emerges as a consequence of the development of newspapers, of media, of of public distribution, where strangers can read the same information and talk about people they don't know. So before that, you had court gossip, and everyone was in the court, and they were talking about what uh, what was going on and what the king was having for breakfast that morning or which hose he was wearing or whatever. But you wouldn't call that public opinion. Why not public? Because it was just the people at the court and it was just about what everyone was um, uh, had to know to be a courtier at the court. Public opinion emerges when everybody can pick up a newspaper and read the facts of what was happening in Scotland or in France or more importantly uh, in the stock market and talk to each other about those facts, have common information, and deal with strangers about it. Coffee houses were the typical site where people would get together to talk about what began to be called politics. So as this notion of public opinion develops in the 16th century, um, there's also invented an agent, the public. Who is the public? Would you say there's public opinion in Saudi Arabia now or not? It would depend on your picture of how people dealt with each other, what media they read, what media they didn't read, etc. In the 17th century, this is developing. There's this idea of the public, what the public wants, what the public demands. And of course, this finds its way into political theory and people like John Locke, like the public consent. The public, this is a very complicated word, the public consents to this sovereign, gives or doesn't give, withholds or or gives legitimation to a sovereign in the glorious revolution, etc. This evolves into the form of government that we're quite familiar with, in which we say public opinion governs. But now we raise the question of, well, what do we mean by um, 
public opinion, where is it coming from? So one image of public opinion imagines the press as a kind of common carrier. It carries the news. The news is what everybody should know. The news is what's different and what you would need to know to be an informed member of the public. And the press is more or less the transparent uh, vehicle that conveys this news. By the end of the 18th century, um, the press has, uh, has got that role, but it has a different role, too. It's the role of the partisan press. It's like Fox News. Uh, at the time of our revolution, the press were filled with the Republican Party newspaper, Frenot, who was Jefferson's uh, editor, and you had the, uh, the Federalists, the conservative editors, and they were feeding you the news much like MSNBC um, and Fox. And that raises the question, of course, is how do people have anything in common if the function of the news is to create the public, which is to have an opinion, and suddenly it gets divided out um, as among them. And we have been suffering that problem of how we want to regard the news um, ever since then. Linda is gesturing to two different ideals which govern, say, the print media now, and also, uh, let's say, the television media. Should the press be objective, or should the press be neutral? So the press being neutral is the press as the transparent uh, vehicle for somebody else's argument. And then, of course, if the press is merely neutral, you can convey anything by simply having the right argument. They used to say about the McNair-Lair report, you know, there's always two sides, which was always parodied. Yes, and what do you think, Mrs. Hitler? You know, on the two sides of the, it's always two sides. Whoever having the argument, the press is neutral between that. And the agenda of public opinion is set by who wants to have an argument with whom. And of course, we've learned, uh, those who want to influence public opinion have learned this lesson uh, quite well. If they want to say that cigarettes uh, don't cause cancer, the cigarette companies, how did they do that? They created an argument about whether the scientific studies were, were, were valid. You know, And we had that argument for 20 years. They were able to protract that argument simply by fall, falling, throwing dust in the eyes of all that scientific work about the harmful effects of nicotine and, uh, and, uh, uh, and cigarette smoke. And you know, we see the same thing with climate change. You, you can see that whenever you want to create a controversy which will paralyze if the press is neutral. Another notion of the press, which is a different value, although we often confuse these values, is that of objectivity. So the press should be the objective conveyor of what we know. So if, uh, if you have on the McNeil Air Report someone who says, well, you know, the world is actually getting colder, and somebody saying, you know, greenhouse gases have increased, the, the reporter isn't just neutral between the debate. They says, well, you know, the best scientific evidence is this, and probes the person who tells us that the world is getting colder. Now, our difficulty with that is, you know, who trusts the press to know what's objective? Why should they be the mediator of objective? And so we, we are caught in the horns of that dilemma as we try to construct a, a public opinion uh, which will allow us to have an educated government. It's not easy to have an educated government, as you saw in the movie um, last night. I, I want to make one more point about the movie for last night for those of you uh, who've, who've seen it, and we'll, and we'll throw it back. But I want to raise a separate question, of, and that is the relationship between public opinion and politics. I think politics is a very peculiar sort of thing. What does it mean to say that we have a country governed by politics? What is politics? It's a form of getting together when we disagree. So if we disagree about things, there are a number of options. Uh, we could fight. We could go to war. War is one way of ending disagreement. Uh, we could also decide to agree. And when we decide to agree, we pass a law, and then everyone has to obey our law. 
or we form a bureaucracy where everyone has to file an EPA report or do whatever the bureaucracy tells us to do. But suppose we want to disagree with each other and we want to live with each other even though we disagree. How do we create a social form that allows us to live together in the face of a disagreement that is actually precious to us? We want to continue the possibility of disagreement. Let's call that politics. Politics is what people do. They get together and they work out their differences politically. When they know they're going to disagree with each other, they want to be able to continue to disagree with each other, but they want to live with each other more than they want to kill each other. Let's call that politics. That's a very distinct form of social organization. And it's very uh, fragile because it exists uh, between, on the one hand, law, dictatorship, management, on the one hand, when we all tumble into agreement, and uh, on the other hand, uh, war, where I don't agree with you, I'm going to stamp you out. Last night's movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, had a very peculiar image of politics. The politics, if you remember this movie, several times he says, um, you can't compromise in politics. You know, I came here, and the one thing I can't do is compromise. When uh, Claude Rains wants to initiate uh, Jimmy Stewart into adulthood, you know, he's a boy ranger and he's in short pants and he has to come to Washington and learn how to be an adult. What does it mean to be an adult? You learn how to compromise. And how does Jimmy Stewart interpret compromise in the great filibuster scene? As corruption, as giving up the ideal. So query to all of you, what does it mean to have a politics without compromise? That's something we're living with now. Is it a constitutionally sustainable? Can Congress live if we don't have compromise? What is the relationship between compromise and those ideals in the Constitution, in the Washington Monument, and in the Lincoln Memorial that you saw in the movie? And most importantly, what is the relationship between compromise and the idea that there's disagreement and, per and perennial disagreement? that we're all going to disagree with each other. The pre the, what makes the movie so peculiar last night was the idea that if anybody heard me, they would have no choice but to agree. There is only one position on the issue that Jimmy Stewart is filibustering about. Can you have politics where everyone agrees? And is that a symbol of what, how adults deal with each other in a situation where we want politics, everyone agrees? Or is that fascism? Or is that you know some very different kind of state. And what is the relationship between public opinion and the continuance of disagreement? The best theorist, I'll close with this thought, the, the best theorist of that relationship is Hannah Arendt. And she says, what is the public? The public is that table at which people are always sitting and looking at it from different angles. You can't see the public when you have only one angle of vision. The public only emerges when people look at it from different angles of vision, when there are different people around the table seeing different things, and they're talking to each other about what they see on the same table, but from different points of view. And if everybody has the same view, there's no public at all. It's like being in the church where everyone agrees and says hallelujah to the same thing. That's not a public, and that's not a public opinion. Public opinion requires the maintenance of pluralism. Politics requires the maintenance of pluralism. And how do we do that under modern conditions? That's a challenge that this movie and this topic uh, raises. It's a con the movie's really a conundrum. So it's come down to us, and those of you who saw it last night have a fresher view, but those of you who, who saw it earlier in life may have the, the sort of truer, iconic view, 
which is, it, it celebrates the refusal to compromise, right? The Jimmy Stewart character <coughs> is a hero instead of a chump. And to the extent I mentioned this last night for those of you who are here, so uh, when Ronald Reagan was trying to get Robert Bork confirmed to the Supreme Court, and the Senate Judiciary Committee had rejected Bork, but yet the name was still on the floor, so the question was, would the nomination be pulled or would it go forward to inevitable doom? And President Reagan said, in keeping the nomination alive, I'm like the Jimmy Stewart character in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I'm going to fight to the end. I'm never going to give up. Well, uh, you know, so there are many ways uh, that the, or at least some obvious ways that the Jimmy Stewart character, you know, might have compromised. I mean, find a different location for the camp he wanted. I mean, the it's a big country. Didn't have to be at that particular spot that was so contested and, and, and so on. But... Um, just to play off a little bit about the, the public opinion theme. So we, we talk about how public opinion influences and interacts with politics. And, of course, that's the same thing with the Supreme Court. So what's the role of public opinion and the court from the public's point of view, from the justices' point of view? So uh, Robert Dahl, the founder of modern political science, died a couple weeks ago at the age of 98. And I wrote a little essay about him uh, in the, in the Times this, this week. And his, his famous insight, uh, which he offered in an article in 1957, one might say a simpler age, but it's still, he, he said the, the real function of the Supreme Court is to legitimate the values of the ruling political coalition. And it does this not, he didn't mean as a rubber stamp legitimation, he meant inevitably, because the court is shaped by politics through the political process of presidents nominating and senators confirming a constant flow of new members to the court, that it's inevitable that the court serves this function. And I got, you know, very sort of comments saying, oh, yeah, well, Mr. Dooley said the same thing the court just follows the election returns. What's so profound about that? But there's something, there's something deeper there. It's not that the court... Uh, looks at the collectively looks at the election returns and says, "Oh, okay, we we salute that." It's that there's a dynamic process that's built hardwired into our constitutional system, by which the court is in constant dialogue with the other branches and will uh, either instinctively or consciously, and I think pretty consciously these days, calibrate its own actions to maximize, to, to, to minimize the chance of major pushback and maximize the chance of acceptance. So uh, what I said in this little essay is that when I, when I dug into some of this current political science material, it helped me maybe understand the puzzling and frustrating saga of the court's involvement in the Guantanamo detainee issues, right? So the court, at a certain moment, 2003, 2004, plunged in, surprisingly, surprised many people, plunged into that issue uh, with a, and began a series of decisions that with increasing force, first kind of with a polite little nudge, and then, you know, what about that, didn't you understand? And then finally, what you're doing in disabling the federal courts from intervening, this is unconstitutional, had a series of, of interventions and then silence. It's 2008 is the last time the court said anything about Guantanamo. So 
you know, did they lose their nerve? Did they lose their majority? Are they simply happy with what's going on? Like, what is the answer for this? I think there's not one answer, just like in many interesting, <clears throat> most interesting points of contention in our society, it's not either or. The truth lies some in some nuanced middle. But I think part of it was that the court felt it had, it had done its work, it had set wheels in motion, it had curbed the excess assertions by the other branches at the margins and brought something back to the middle. And it was in its own institutional interest to just back off at that point. It had set the boundaries, set a, a constitutional floor beneath which the whole matter couldn't sink and let the political branches work it out. And I think that was a kind of a self-conscious uh, calibration within our three branches and interbranch relations. So maybe I'll let Kenji weigh in there. Yeah, I want to pick up on the theme of the relationship, not just between uh, public opinion and Congress, which is where we started, but public opinion in the courts, which is where you were taking it. I mean, um, so I gave the example of Dickerson earlier, but you know, I think your doll argument is a great one. Uh, whenever I teach constitutional law to my students, we begin with judicial review and the counter-majoritarian difficulty. And the definition of the counter-majoritarian difficulty is how is it that you know, nine elderly lawyers in Washington, D.C. have the power to strike down a majoritarian enactment that even a unanimous Congress has enacted? And so I start with this question. And the usual answer is, well, because of this kind of Bekelian, there are certain fundamental values that have been embodied in the Constitution that they are uh, enforcing, and that judges actually have a specific institutional competence in protecting those values because they're insulated from the hurly-burly of ordinary politics. So because they have lifetime tenure, they can follow the quote-unquote way of the scholar, which is why law professors love judges, because judges do what we do. And judges of tenure, we have tenure. And so uh, judges reason out things. Uh, we hopefully reason out things. And so obviously the identification is going to be with the court uh, when uh, constitutional law professors teach uh, about uh, our constitutional order. Uh, but I try to problematize this in both directions. And one way to do it is the way that Linda did it, which is, and I actually use Dahl for this point, because Dahl said that if you look at this on average, you know, so he was doing this at the time when the study was released, so I think the statistics might be slightly different now. But he said, on average, every 22 months, a Supreme Court justice is replaced. So how counter-majoritarian really is this body when there's this knowledge that if the Supreme Court goes too far outside of the mainstream, the political mainstream, that politics and public opinion are going to police it back into the center. So that's one thought of this counter-majoritarian body it may not be as counter-majoritarian as we think it is. And the notion of the court is going to rule and let the skies fall is actually a very romantic and empirically not very well substantiated point, of which more in a second. But the flip is also true, right? I mean, these bodies that we think of as extraordinarily uh, majoritarian, think about Congress, are not as majoritarian as they may seem on first sight. Because if you think about the Senate, what could be more counter-majoritarian than California and Rhode Island both getting two senators? Right? I mean, that is deeply counter-majoritarian in the sense of you know, how many individuals each of those senators represents. And so this distinction between the court, on the one hand, is being completely insulated and above public opinion and politics, and then the 
uh, political bodies being completely controlled by whatever the majority wants is, I think, a deeply, uh, at least contestable one, if not a flawed one. And then to go to the final point about public opinion, my colleague Barry Friedman at NYU has written a book called The Will of the People, where he says the court very rarely gets too far ahead of public opinion. And when it does it, it often regrets it. You know, so if you look at the times when the court has really flipped the laws of you know, more than 40 states, like Roe versus Wade, you, know, you have individuals like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who obviously is a staunch advocate of the abortion right. Now, Linda, you'll have something to say about I this in a moment. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, has said, we got way too far ahead of the country, and so therefore uh, we need to engage in a more incrementalist jurisprudence. Similarly, with the same-sex marriage cases decided last term, I think that the only way to truly understand why the court found that there was jurisdiction in one case, the Windsor case, and no jurisdiction in the other case, so it punted on uh, the state cases while it ruled on the federal case. Just to uh, give a little bit more background here, the federal case was a Defense of Marriage Act, which denied federal benefits to same-sex couples who are recognized as married within their jurisdictions. Whereas the Perry case, the case that I'm writing about, is the California Prop 8 case. And the Supreme Court in the Prop 8 case could have come up with a 50-state solution, essentially uh, striking down bans on same-sex marriage across the land. And what the Supreme Court did in the first case was to rule in favor of the plaintiff and say that federal benefits could not be denied to a valid same-sex marriage. But it eschewed right, giving a decision on the second case on the ground that the proponents of that case did not have standing, thereby kicking it back to the district court and deferring the decision of whether or not same-sex marriage bans across the nation are constitutional for another day. And I think that the best way of understanding that split decision has a lot to do with popular opinion, that you know, popular opinion was strongly against the Defense of Marriage Act. But at the time that the case reached the court, only nine states had legalized same-sex marriage. So the court would again be flipping more than 40 states. And the last time that it had done so on a significant social issue was Roe. And the court blinked, in my view. Uh, and in some senses, rightly, maybe prudentially, blinked in terms of the cause at issue. But this idea that the court is completely insulated from public opinion, I think, is a chimera. Yes. So at the time the court decided Roe against Wade, January 1973, uh, Justice Harry Blackman had in his files a clipping from a Gallup poll taken in the summer of 1972 uh, that showed that strong majorities of the public uh, uh, in all demographic groups, uh, including Roman Catholics and the highest group of all Republicans, by about 65%, uh, answered yes to the question, should abortion be a matter between a woman and her doctor? without government intervention, answered yes. So, you know, what I say to people about that when the question of comparing the threshold of Roe against Wade to the threshold of certainly what seems to be coming, which is a national rule of same-sex marriage, is that the justices didn't think they were going against public opinion. They actually thought they were ratifying public opinion, as indeed they were to a large measure. I mean, the initial response to Roe against Wade was either hooray or, you know, oh, that's interesting. It was not the, it, it wasn't the blowback or the backlash uh, that we think of it today. That came <coughs> later in the decade. That actually slops over into the, into the 1980s. It wasn't until the 1980 political season that the National Republican Party 
uh, took a stand against Roe against Wade in its platform and called for the appointment of judges and justices who would overturn it. 1976, the first occasion to do that after the 1973 decision, the Republican Party was still maintaining a big tent on abortion. It's a very complicated subject, and if people are interested, we can go into it more. But so it's interesting to compare in today's discourse about same-sex marriage, whether same-sex marriage, either in politics or at the court, the, the use that people make of the Roe against Wade analogy, I think, is often uh, fairly indistinct, although certainly given the march of same-sex marriage across the country now, uh, and the fact that even in states where um, it's been brought not by legislation, as in, for instance, Maryland, uh, but by judicial decree, as in, for instance, Connecticut, um, really uh, the level of acceptance has been very high. There's been a kind of a public ratification. And certainly uh, if Proposition 8 in California were put to the California voters today, Proposition 8, which, which um, amended the California Constitution to say that marriage was only before, between a man and a woman, a proposition that would be rejected overwhelmingly by a vote of the California voters today. So it's, we're in a very interesting moment. I can't wait for Kenji's book. It's going to be very enlightening as he pulls all this it's, it's, together. It's interesting when we talk about the relationship between public opinion and court decisions or in Congress, or we talk about what will happen in California or not. Um, what is the technology by which we know what public opinion is? Exactly. How do we know what it is that public opinion is? So, in uh, 1888, James Bryce, who was the ambassador here from uh, Great Britain, writes uh, the, a book called The American Commonwealth, which is the great book of American politics after de Tocqueville. And he coins a phrase. He says, America is a government by public opinion, he says, in 1888. And, uh, and he says, well, people ob ob object to me, so how can you have a government by public opinion when nobody knows what it is? It's a great defect of having a government by public opinion when no one can understand it. And he said, well, you know, public opinion is the inarticulate murmur that every politician strives to hear. And the sovereign can nevertheless be a sovereign even though he mumbles. That was his response to this. And uh, it's true. You know, if you try to think of what, if, you, if a, you're a politician or if you're a court, you're trying to take the sounding, what is public opinion that I'm supposed to be responsive to? Imagine yourself in 1900 and how you're going to do that. Uh, you're going to read probably the local papers as evidence of public opinion. You're going to talk to your friends in Abilene or in Fargo or in Reno to try to get a sense of what their circles are. I mean, so we get invented in the 1920s and the 1930s something called public opinion polls and focus groups. And that changes entirely the concept of what public opinion is. And when you see, whenever you see political scientists talking about public opinion in the court, like Dahl, they are typically talking about one image of public opinion, which is the public opinion that is captured in a poll, which is a very specific sort of thing. It's a very powerful sort of thing. It's powerful because I think I know what the public opinion is here. It's 37%. It's 35%. Very precise. I, I, I can remember I was brought in by the State Department when uh, uh, the Iraqis were going to write a constitution. So they brought in some, um, some folk to teach the Iraqi politicians in the constituent assembly before they had actually elected anyone had to write a constitution. I spent you know, a week and a half in Amman working with these, uh, you know, the Sunnis are here and the Shia are here and the Alawa are here and they're all talking to each other and I'm saying, well, 
do you want to have three branches or two? You know, those are very simple things, none of which is really carrying any weight with, the, with, uh, with these people, because basically they want to say, I want to rule. And the one thing that I never forgot in the whole situation is the State Department had brought in experts to do public opinion polling in Baghdad, which was no easy thing given the state that Baghdad was in. <laughs> on simple questions like, you know, do you want electricity? Uh, you know, what about your water from four to five in the afternoon? And we were presenting on a screen the results of this public opinion polling to these Iraqi leaders. They had never seen a public opinion poll. They had no concept of public opinion poll. And their idea of political leadership is, I talk, they follow. I'm their leader. I'm the daddy of the tribe or whatever it is. And you could watch around the table as the lights went off. Oh, they have an opinion independent of me. Oh, I can appeal to what they're actually already thinking. This is not a thought that had occurred to them. Did the lights go off because they had voted against electricity? <laughs> <laughs> that I could appeal selling electricity, you know? They, they hadn't thought of it as something they could sell, service, or that they could respond. And it was such a powerful tool, this idea of the public opinion poll, um, to these people who had not lived in a world where public opinion goes. Now, public opinion polls we accept as kind of ersatz uh, 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 stand-ins for public opinion. But, you know, um, public opinion polls are very defective. They're, they're a product of the kind of questions they're asked. They're the product of a particular moment. And they are static. And also, they are, uh, how should I put this? They're preferential. They're what people happen to be feeling or thinking at a moment in time. And when people really care about public opinion, when we speak about the court caring about public opinion, we're not speaking about the court, I hope, responding to a public opinion poll. We're speaking about the court doing something that's analogous to appealing from Philip drunk to Philip sober. What's the real public opinion, the long-lasting public? When people get over this wave of hysteria, what will be their public? I mean, that sort of sense. So the public opinion poll has one lifespan. It has one form of representation. It has advantages. It has a lot of disadvantages. And when people are really serious in politics about talking about public opinion, they are pygmies if all they're doing is following what the opinions poll says each morning. Their leaders, if they're saying, I understand from this where public opinion can go or what the deeper trend. I mean, the minute we're doing metaphors like that, we're back to James Bryce and the sense of public opinion as something that has more longevity, more orientation toward sustainable ideals than what happens to be answered to Gallup on any given moment. And if we think about, just to go back, I'm the one who keeps going back to the movie, I suppose, but going back to, to uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, you know, when he's looking at those, uh, the Lincoln Memorial and the, the iconic images of America, and he's reciting George Washington, at the beginning of the movie, that's treated as parody. By the end, it's treated as meaning because it's treated as our long-lasting, the long durée, the, the opinions that matter, that we actually have when we come to our senses, when we come to our senses, of course, being the crucial um, qualification. So there's public opinion, and there's public opinion, and public opinion of the kind that is politically valuable, really politically uh, allows political leadership, is never capturable in a poll never reducible to a fact of 37%, 36%. It's always a political judgment. And that political judgment is always, in the end, a political judgment about who we are. 
And so when we come back to the question of the court and public opinion, what would be a court that would decide a legal question about our constitution, which is our identity, and not care about who we are in the long term? That would be a nightmare. That would be Kafka. If the law were, if our constitutional law were systematically made by professionals who didn't care what we are, what we who have to obey this law, who have to respect this law, who have to honor it, if they didn't care what we thought and we had to be, uh, you know, have this relation, what kind of court would that be? Yeah, can I actually just dig into that? Because I think that's so profound and, and interesting. And actually, I want to say that we now have sort of three models of uh, the kind of public opinion uh, that the court might care about. So if we just take for granted that the court cares to some extent about public opinion and is not completely insulated from it, we've now adduced at least three visions of what that public opinion might look like. So I started with the state counts of Roe flipping more than 40 states and the court being unwilling to flip more than 40 states in the Perry case. Right? And you responded to that with historical data about polling right, at the time of Roe that suggested that a majority of the country was for it, contrary to what the majority of the states still had on their books. Right? So one is just counting noses of how many states out there right, are for or against this particular practice before you, how many states are you flipping by declaring something unconstitutional? Another one is by looking at uh, public opinion in terms of polling. And it seems to me that the court does both, but will always be much more willing to do the former rather than the latter because of notions of federalism and you know, the states count, right? Whereas newspaper polls or what have you don't count in the argument of the court. So something very similar to what you were saying earlier about uh, the Miranda warning decision about how in Straussian terms there's a exoteric and an esoteric meaning, right? There's a meaning that is, uh, same words, but the uh, exoteric meaning is a, is a meaning that's pushed out to the general public. The esoteric meaning is what the cognoscenti, can, like you, can read into it. Right? I learned a lot of vocabulary in talking to Kenji. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a simpler way of putting that might be to say it's sort of dog whistle politics, right? You know, there's a dog whistle that the cognoscenti can hear, right? Uh, that, you know, the, the general public might not hear. And the dog whistle and the uh, Miranda warning uh, case, as you were describing it, and I agree with you, is that, uh, you know, Rehnquist is saying, I bow to public opinion on this, but the dog whistle that you heard and that I heard was uh, actually the Miranda warning that he's asking, that he's deferring to the public on, is actually a Miranda warning that he's watered down, right? But so those are at least two models, right, uh, state opinion and public uh, opinion polls. And I would say that, let's take the interracial marriage case in 1967. That's actually the flip, which is really interesting, where when Loving versus Virginia was decided in 1967, uh, there were only 16 states that still banned interracial marriage. Right? So Maryland flips during the course of the litigation, so we go from 17 to 16 uh, by the time the court uh, renders its opinion. But still, if you actually look at public opinion polls, a vast supermajority of the country, you know, depending on the poll, 70, 80, even 90% of individuals say that they are against legalizing interracial marriage. Right? So what are we to make of that? Right? In that case, the court is privileging right, the state knows count over the uh, polling if those were the only two options. And calling on a deeper value. Well, that's, I think, where we get to Robert of who we are. right? Because the third model is I defer to public opinion, but I defer to public opinion in this, you know, as Marshall says in the McCulloch opinion, it is a constitution we are expounding. What is our constitutional ethos over time? Right. And that intertemporal stream of time rather than slice of time 
uh, dimension, I think, is really, really important. Right? So we can think of really um, sad instances of this, like uh, Justice O'Connor, from my perspective as a progressive, saying in the 2003 affirmative action case, 25 years from now, I don't think affirmative action will be necessary. And that, to me, was so heartrending because it was almost a mosaic utterance of I can point you to the promised land, but I cannot inhabit it myself because the court in 2028 is a court that she knew that she would not be on. Right? So this is a very tragic notion of what the American uh, zeitgeist is going to look like, but she internalizes this notion of temporality into her constitutional judgment. Right? So this is, I think, what Robert is getting at. So that Robert and, and, and uh, Linda are not uh, sort of left hanging out there on the movie, let me bring it back uh, to the movie, which is to say, who is Jeff Smith's constituency in the movie? Jeff Smith's constituency in the movie are boys, right? Because he's the head of the boy rangers, you know, so he is, and he's repeatedly referred to as a boy, right? Whether positively or negatively. So negatively, you know, individuals say, you've sent a boy in to do a man's job, Right, so he gets hit a lot by the fact that he's just wet behind the ears and too immature to be a senator. But also, uh, affectionately, even by his supporters, you know, Clarissa Saunders right, says, I feel like, when she says to Diz, you know what I feel like? I feel like I've just sent, like as a mother, I've sent a child with his bib and tucker on you know, to go get to school for the first day, and I'm worried that he's going to get eaten alive. Right, so he's a boy from beginning to end. And at the end, what we see being used against a Taylorite machine, remember there's that great line where they pun off of his name and they say, this is a public opinion that's tailor-made right, uh, to suit the corporate machine's needs. Right? Uh, what the resistance to that is all these boys right, with their red flyers like <laughs> dragging these newspapers that are called boys' stuff right, uh, across the nation in order to resist it. And ultimately, the sense is that they prevail, right? So that notion of intertemporality, he's appealing to the younger generation to grow up to become better senators than the people that he's addressing. And that, I think, is the key question. So one question, I think, for the audience is, how are we supposed to read the end of this movie? Right? Because the older version of this movie, as Robert told me last night, had a version where he goes back and he's uh, celebrated ticker tape parades and all of that for Jeff Smith. But that ending gets cut. And in fact, all we have is him in a faint right, on the Senate floor, and then uh, the Claude Rains character, uh, Senator Payne, confessing his bad deeds. So where are we to go with that? And let me posit to you, it to you in this way. Whenever I read Lord of the Flies, I always get a chill down my spine because for all the obvious reasons, but for this additional, I hope, non-obvious reason, which is that the Navy comes to save the boys at the end of that book or movie, right? But the Navy is just those boys on the island grown up, right? So who is rescuing whom? It's the who will guard the guardians issue all over again in this intergenerational conversation, right? So I think that this movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, asks the opposite question, which is to say, here the boys are rescuing the older generation, but how much of a rescue can that be if the boys are going to grow up to be the corrupt senators that we've seen. So are we confident that the boys are going to grow up to be a different, better generation than the Senate that populates that chamber? So we're about to take questions from the audience. And um, I would like to ask you if you have a question to line up. We have a mic here and a mic here. Uh, and we do need you to speak into the mic because this is being podcast. 
and otherwise the podcast can't pick up your question. Before asking the question, please tell us your name. And out of respect for other people in the audience who might want to ask, please ask only um, one question. Uh, my name is Peter Goodman. Uh, how many people in the audience have been watching House of Cards? Uh, when I meet in, I'm in the business of influencing public opinion. And when I meet with people who are under 40, I ask them, how many of you get your news from the print media? And I generally get no hands going up. Uh, so I'm wondering whether in the world we live in, that policy is now being set by entertainment rather than by traditional media. That, that's a really good question. And in fact, until we sort of ran out of time and it was time to turn it over to you all, I was going to segue to the role of, of Hollywood in both creating and reflecting public opinion. So Hollywood can't get too far, it seems to me anyway, Robert's the expert on Hollywood, uh, too far out of what the public wants to pay to see and hear. So Hollywood has to calibrate what's the public mood, what kind of films do, will the public come to see. And in creating those films, influences the public vision of our culture and ourselves. So uh, let me ask Robert to weigh in if he thinks I'm halfway right. Well, I, I'm going to riff on the word you used, entertainment. And the question is, what is entertainment versus what is news? And uh, uh, um, here's a, a thought that might... Uh, frighten you, which is our democracy rests on public opinion, and public opinion is opinion. So Daniel Patrick Moynihan famously said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but not to their own facts. Right. Right? Um, or you can contrast public opinion to knowledge. Like, we know something. We know something about climate change. We know something about tobacco. We know something about the half-life of plutonium. But you may have your opinion. What's your opinion worth? In this, uh, in this context. We have a First Amendment which converts everything into public opinion. So you can have an opinion about this and someone else can have an opinion and everybody's opinion in our constitutional sense is equal. But what is our public opinion worth if nobody knows anything anymore? If nobody has any expert knowledge? If facts don't matter because they get transmuted into both the glory and the muck of opinion? What's, what's our public policy worth if we don't know actually whether the earth is getting warmer or not? How can we be intelligent democratic citizens? So we need to, I think, a big crisis is how we distinguish forms of knowledge from forms of opinion. And my suggestion to you is the way we do that is we create forms of authority and respect. Knowledge exists only because we respect those who uh, supervise the disciplinary standards by which certify knowledge. But of course, that is quite contrary to the internet, which is anti-authoritarian and libertarian. It's quite contrary to the postmodern impulse, which says everything is equal, and you know, you're, and it's quite contrary to the populism that you saw in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, because if everyone's opinion is equal, then no one knows anything at all. And that's a really crucial point. And I think what you're seeing is the conversion of news into entertainment because nobody knows anything at all. Everybody just has an opinion for us now. That's a very deep point about our, our society. I'll just make a really quick answer to that a question about the link between entertainment and uh, knowledge, which is that uh, one of my 
subspecialties is law and literature. So I had the great pleasure of co-teaching a class on law and love in Shakespeare's plays with Carol Gilligan, uh, the psychologist at NYU. And one of our students, after we read you know, about half the canon, raised uh, his hand and said, what is it with all of these clowns? Like, why would a ruler allow this individual or the fools or the jesters you know, to come in and entertain them on the one hand, but then mock them on the other? Um, and we said, well, we think that this is a mode of actually getting the truth for the ruler to actually be able to get the truth in a way that is uh, ironically face-saving for uh, the ruler. And um, the student seemed skeptical. And so I said, OK, let me just cut to the chase here. How many of you watch The Daily Show and get your news from The Daily Show? I actually wasn't asking. I was asking them. But you know, <laughs> great if you want to. And half, more than half, supermajority of the kids raise their hands. That's where they're getting their news, from The Daily Show. Right? And so what is that but the jester right? uh, in, in modern day form? He is a Shakespearean jester. Hi, I'm Jim Pucinich. I'm a docent here. My question is, if the Supreme Court is influenced by the media, if they're influenced by public opinion, if they're influenced by politics, as Judge Alito said when he sat up there a couple of months ago, is there, are there any principles that are immutable that the court will not touch? Sorry, decisis has been shredded, really, by the Roberts Court. Is there anything that is unapproachable? Is there anything in your life that's immutable? Hmm. In any life, anyone here, immutable? That I'd like to continue living it, that's one. <laughs> <laughs> and I pay taxes, number that's two. that's where we begin, right? And that's where we end. <laughs> I'm trying to work out a death and taxes response yeah, that uses the taxing part to talk about how the Affordable Care Act was upheld in the taxing power, but I can't quite land the plane. So the beginning of the scarlet letter is uh, in a cemetery, and the reflection is sin and death are always with us, are always uh, immutable. I, I would hope I would be the last person to attribute either to the court, but you might start there. But uh, actually, in a serious answer to that question, I mean, I, I think that there are, I mean, not immutable in the sense of we know with total confidence, you know, that they'll be there for all time but not because of what the court does, but because of what public opinion in combination with the court's pronouncement does. There are certain sacred cows that are not going to go away in my lifetime. Right? So they may be reinterpreted, distorted, what have you. But think about Brown versus Board of Education. Right? Uh, you know, constitutional theorists say any constitutional theory that says that Brown versus Board was wrong is itself wrong. Right? So you can't have a constitutional theory that says that Brown was wrongly decided. Until it is. Well, until it is, but I just don't expect that... Um, that's going to happen in my lifetime. Right, right. So let me put it that way again. And just to say, for example, in the Parents Involved case in 2007, when the court is um, debating whether or not to allow a form of racially conscious uh, redistricting in secondary schools, both the majority and the dissent cite Brown versus Board of Education. So the contestation is over the meaning of Brown. But this is like the La Rochefoucauld thing of this is the homage that uh, flattery is the homage that vice pays to virtue, right? Which is to say that everybody is saying we're going to flatter and pay homage to Brown. So that's not in question. What's in question is whether, as Adam Liptak, your successor said, is whether or not you listen to the words of Brown or to the music. I, I think a very serious answer to your very serious question. John Dewey uh, wrote a book called The Quest for Certainty. 
I mean, what we want in our life, we want certainty. We want something we can rely on, something that is dependable and unchanging that we can cling to. And uh, it's very difficult to find these things in the world. And the closest we get is captured by a wonderful um, metaphor called Nerath's boat. Do you know the boat? It's like we are, we are all, when we deal with law, when we deal with principles like this, we are all in the position of uh, four people who are out on a boat that's leaking in the middle of the Atlantic, and we're bailing it out. As we're floating, we're bailing it out. We're always in the middle of it, but we're somehow keeping it going. You can't simultaneously question everything, but anything can be questioned. And we're in the middle of a process that we're trying desperately to give meaning to and to some kind of significance, which we often associate with being immutable. We often associate with unchanging. And as uh, Kenji and Lidia were saying, the next generation will have this. I will be eternal in the next generation. Um, you know, that's our hope. Um, we know from history that's not going to happen. Um, but we want things that actually matter, and we want them respected. And we want them taken above the fray. And that's the most natural thing in the world. And uh, we win if our things are taken above the fray, and we lose if they're not. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Page. And I have to say, I'm very upset to learn that Jimmy Stewart has become Ted Cruz. I mean, it's just, it breaks my heart. Or Wendy Davis. Wendy or Wendy Davis. Davis. Wendy Davis right? so, yeah. Good. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, Did you notice the tennis shoes he was wearing? Oh. <laughs> um, uh, what's interesting to me when I look around, especially at the kids, yes, they're turning to John Stewart and the Colbert Report and the gestures, but also to Twitter and to all the social media. And I think the kids are on to the fact that the mediated news is very bogus and balkanized. And so there's a, a conversation that's happening apart from that that's also causing you know, whole governments to topple in, in other regions of the, of the world. So my real question is about net neutrality, because here is where I think there's something dangerous could happen to shut down that, that whole artery of communication. And that's what I'd like to hear from you guys, net neutrality. So to privilege some speakers with access over others, you're saying... The, the, the danger lies in... No. The net neutrality issues have to do with the fact that the co-opting of the social media so that the media giants trying to get in and weigh in on legislation that would, that would limit the public access, the neutrality of the Internet, and privilege the powerful to have channels to send their information, their stories, their communication. They would have broadband frequencies that are only limited to their discourse. They would take over and create channels, so to speak, and shut out anyone who would like to go online, read a blog, publish something, communicate. And that net neutrality, the, the neutrality of this this structure that's been created on the internet is, is threatened at this point by the very entities that are being challenged by it. I guess my response to that, without being any kind of scholar of the internet, is just as 10 or 15 years ago we wouldn't have imagined Facebook or Twitter or these alternative 
channels when we were all dialing up AOL, right? That I, I have to think there's enough ingenuity and energy and, and motive that, that we find a way around that. This, this is a legal question. This, well, this, this is what's being challenged legally as to who owns the internet. So that the, the structures, the, the media conglomerates are trying to take it over and to license channels, license broadband access. Just as you see governments that are limiting communication on the internet, for example, China, that doesn't allow certain people to publish blogs or they shut down Twitter communication. And this is having it a, happening at, a, if you want to call it, a federal level. But you then also have the commercial interests who are trying to limit access because they see the profit mode. You know, they see profits there. So I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of that wonderful old movie, The Music Man, you might remember, where shocked, shocked to discover that there's pool right here in River City. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the structure of what you're, what, what you're putting on table, which is a, a, you know, a very worrisome thing, is that here you have an extremely important industry, and the giants of that industry are actually affecting the legislation that's going to regulate them. And um, that's what we call in the legal business capture. It's when the regulators are captured by the industry that they're supposedly regulating. And that is the baseline condition for any regulation you're going to find anywhere in the United States about any industry that you look at. I mean, that's unfortunately the issue is we want to say that whether it's the internet or whether it's newspapers or whether it's the environment or whether it's mines or whether it's coal stacks and the power industry, we want them regulated not in the interests of the industry, which happens to have the largest financial interest at stake and knows most about it, but rather in the interest of the general public, right. which is what. To, and so that brings us back to this notion of the general public, right. and who are they, and how do they know what they think, and how do we know what's right there? I, I just want to call attention to the fact that there's two different images of what the general public could be there. It could be there's a fact of the matter. The fact of the matter is what would maximize everybody's interest. And so that's just a matter of knowledge, what would actually be the most efficient, the most effective, the fact of the matter for the public. There's a different way to conceptualize that, and is what's the right thing to do, which is a set of normative trade-offs, as to which there's no fact of the matter. There's just getting it right, normatively speaking. So how do we know whether we get it right? And, and this is just one example of the larger problem. Well, we talk to each other. And we decide what's right. But then how do we talk to each other? We talk to each other through the very broad uh, band that you're talking about or through the newspapers that are tailor-made or through the movies that come out of Hollywood that have their own politics or through the radio. I mean, there is no outside of the thing is the point. There is no immutable. There's no outside the struggle. That is always the struggle to get it in the way you think is just and to convince others who think it's different that you're right. And that's where we are in that situation like we are in every other situation. Always in the middle of that struggle. Joel Carton, thank you for a very thoughtful presentation. I have a question about, uh, it was brought up by a professor of journalism talking about each year she asked her class how many people read a daily newspaper. 100% said yes. How many read a physical newspaper? Zero. And the implications she talked about were the print media today, the newspapers, don't make much money on the internet when people read it. 
and therefore they have to cut the number of investigative reporters that they can afford to have on their staff. And she said, which made sense to me, and I wanted your opinions, this is one of the major threats to democracy. We're eliminating investigative reporting locally, statewide, maybe nationally, there'll be the LA Times, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. And I wanted your comments on the threat to democracy without uh, investigative reporting. I think that's overdone. I think that's overstated in that we're in, a peri in an incredibly dynamic period of all kinds of startups uh, coming up that are doing fabulous investigative reporting, uh, ProPublica, uh, Politico, so on. So we're, we're at a, a real kind of inflection point uh, in the... In, the, in media history, but I wouldn't despair uh, based on that, those sets of observations because uh, money is pouring into these new internet-based forms. Uh, you know, Bill Keller, the former executive editor of the Times, just announced he's leaving to, to head one of these, you know. Uh, so I think we're actually entering quite, a, quite an exciting uh, journalistic period. I'm not depressed about it. Oh, thank you. Joyce Grossman. I was reading online about the greenhouse effect, and Linda, I thought maybe it was about climate change. But they were talking about you suggesting you had inordinate power with the courts, and I would like to know, do any of you believe... I could only, I could only wish. Right, well, that's quite an honor. But I, I'd like to know, given the prevalence of think tanks in Washington and individual journalists who have followings, or legal scholars, are there individuals who have the ear of the Supreme Court who genuinely have influence? Or when we talk about public opinion, is it very diffuse, and we all have a little bit of power? Well, no, I, 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 don't think, um, I don't think there are justices who tailor their actions to individuals in the media. I think there are some individuals in the media who take their cues from certain justices. <laughs> it's a different question, but, um, but I, I, I think my answer to your question is, is no. No influence. Hi, uh, my name is Tony Stepanski. Um, I must say that this is one of the more intriguing discussions that I've experienced in a very long time, and I want to say thank you. Uh, I have dozens of questions, but I'll limit it to one. Could you please comment on the impact that uh, public opinion had or did not have on the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United? Uh, was you directing that to me? So, well, you know, the Supreme Court pulled a fast one in Citizens United, so... Uh, when the case first came to the court, it was a very narrow little case, as you recall, that nobody much paid attention to. It was simply whether the anti-Hillary Clinton film that this organization, <coughs> Citizens United, wanted to show on video on demand came within the prohibition of the McCain-Feingold uh, campaign finance law. Uh, and then the court ordered re-argument and expanded it to the whole thing. And I think the I think the public was kind of caught unawares, which is why 
well, why a couple of things. So why it came as a huge surprise. And, and B, uh, people assumed that the court had just sort of made something up, whereas in fact, also under the radar, there have been a series of opinions starting in the 1970s that uh, in which the court held that corporations had First Amendment rights to speak in politics. So the majority in Citizens United was helping itself to a body of precedent that had been created without much, anybody much paying attention to it. And then all of a sudden it got five votes. And that, that was the difference. So I think that's, I think people that were, you know, shocked by it, which was many people, many people in this neighborhood certainly, um, hadn't uh, maybe sufficiently been watching the, the decades-long trajectory of, um, of how the First Amendment was expanding into an area where we, many people had assumed uh, the First Amendment didn't go. Actually, I have a book coming out on Citizen United in about two months. And um, one of the things to notice about that opinion is that it's, the, uh, it's cited now as the great exception to Dahl. <laughs> it's the most counter-majoritarian Supreme Court opinion in recent memory. It gets routinely 70 80% disapproval ratings from Republicans and Democrats. I mean, it is one of the most unpopular opinions um, ever. Um, and it's interesting to note, if you actually look at the practicality of what it did, uh, corporations like to buy both sides of an election. They're very risk-averse. So they will tend to give to both candidates. So the technical holding of Citizens United do- didn't have so much effect as its rhetoric. Its rhetoric was like Jimmy Stewart in, is a true believer. There's only one way to think about it. First Amendment is like the most precious thing. It can't be compromised. And if you're speaking independently, no one can limit what you say. Otherwise, you've created a police state. And that is passionately believed, let me say, by the author of that opinion, by Justice Kennedy. I don't think it corresponds to the reality of freedom of speech uh, anywhere in the world, certainly not in the United States. But he believes that. He wrote it that way. And it created a change in climate, which allowed the creation of things called super PACs, which have probably been the most, where private people can create a PAC that does what we call technically independent expenditures without any limitations. But you could have done that before Citizens United. Actually, Citizens United doesn't create them, doesn't authorize them in any particularly special way. I'm being a little oversimple here. But for the most part, you could say that, that that's, these, are, these are coming out of a 1976 decision called Buckley versus Vallejo. And so it really changed the climate. And it changed the climate such that anybody could say anything, no matter how much money. And the rest of us are saying, well, what kind of a public opinion is that? that we can trust? Is that public opinion? And it's forcing us to think about the very issues we started this conversation with. And that's a very constructive conversation to have. In a way, it changed the climate because we allowed it to change the climate. So there's been a lot of sloppy journalism about Citizens United, actually. Um, yeah, and attri- I, yeah, attributing yeah. to Citizens United a whole lot of stuff that either had already happened by that time or was not directly enabled by Citizens United. Right, it becomes a focal point or a nidus for the conversation. It's a symbol. Rather than being the thing itself, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess uh, the only, um, I have a kind of intelligent comment and then an anecdote, a hopefully intelligent comment. Um, I guess the thought that you're introducing, which is really, really crucial, is that we've been talking about the media, right, but we haven't been talking about money, 
right? And the relationship between that as a force and controlling public opinion, right? So I think that another way to think about um, what was a public opinion leading up to Citizens United was, you know, what did the public understand how much uh, this decision as a, and the broader set, you know, broader kind of archipelago of decisions that it represents um, would do uh, with regard to allowing money to shape um, public opinion. And I think that in a way, um, this goes to the uh, earlier point uh, about uh, technology as well, of, of this just this real uh, fear that um, technology and, and money is going to drown out uh, the voice of the people. So there's a wonderful article by a literary scholar actually named Elaine Scarry up at Harvard uh, on the Second Amendment where she said, you know, technology has really changed uh, should change our understanding of the Second Amendment. Because back when the framers framed the Second Amendment, which is about the right to bear arms, you had to actually go out and persuade a lot of individuals in order to hurt a lot of individuals. Uh, because everyone, the technology meant that you just had a gun, right? And so you had to persuade lots of people with muskets to go and to battle with other people with muskets. And so that was more of a one-on-one -on -one kind of uh, interaction between the individual who was trying to do the persuading and the individuals who were persuaded. And she said that landscape with the uh, weaponry that we now have has completely transformed the landscape. And so therefore we have to understand the Second Amendment in a different way vis-a-vis -vis our democratic culture. So I would say the same thing with both uh, technology and money. You know, the amount of money that's flowing into uh, our politics, the amount of uh, technological uh, non-net neutrality that is affecting our politics, I think, is something that uh, we need to be very mindful of. Um, you know, so um, that's the, the thought. Um, the anecdote, which I can't help sharing, is that, you know, so as I've mentioned a couple times, I'm writing a book on uh, Prop 8, same-sex marriage litigation, and the Citizens United decision actually comes down during this decision. And so remember that the Prop 8 decision is famous because it pairs the famous odd couple of David Boyes, who's a you know, private lawyer but very liberal, you know, and Ted Olson, who is very conservative. So Jeff Tubin says if there's a vast right-wing conspiracy, as Hillary Clinton said, it's probably being run out of Ted Olson's house. <laughs> so they fought the opposite sides of Bush versus Gore. They're both incredibly charming human beings. Uh, and so I once introduced them, and uh, I said, uh, you know, David had said, you know, our friendship is not so odd as it would seem on its face, because when you're litigating a case at that, that high profile, the only person who understands it at that level of granular specificity is your party opposite. So long after your spouse will not listen to you talk about the case anymore, <laughs> the party opposite will talk about the case even at the level of uh, minutiae. And so I said, you know, that's really interesting because that's what Sherlock Holmes said about Moriarty. And then Ted Olson had a look on his face. So I said, no, no, Ted, I always thought that Moriarty was a cooler character. So Noah's version <laughs> was intended, you know. Uh, but what was interesting about that moment was that Citizens United literally comes down during the trial. And this is the moment that puts the uh, uh, strange bedfellows left, right, you know, political alignment to the test. Because one of the expert witnesses, Gary Segura, is a political scientist from Stanford testifying for the plaintiffs. And he sees Ted Olson and his team high-fiving each other because Citizens United has just come down. And he says, you've just destroyed democracy. You know, like, I cannot believe that 
I'm on the same team as people who brought us Citizens United. And then one of the junior associates on the Gibson Dunn team comes to him and says, no, 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 let me explain what we did in that case. And then Segura finally just has to pull rank and says, look, I'm a political scientist at Stanford University. I really don't want to hear it from you. So that was actually the moment of great tension uh, in, the, in the case. There's nothing much to do with political or popular opinion, but I just had to uh, throw that into the mix. This, this anecdote and this question has a lot actually to do with the net neutrality question that was asked. Because, I mean, if I had to make a prediction, I'm not a political scientist, I'm just a lawyer, you know, so what do I know? But if I had to make a prediction, I would say that the biggest impact of Citizens United will be on the Republican Party. Because the Republican Party always had a, a huge amount of money that was controlled. And what Citizens United did is it unleashed every cowboy with, uh, you know, a big hat and a lot of money to support their own candidate. You saw that with Adelson and Gingrich. And that means that the Republican Party can no longer have institutional control over who's going to represent the Republican Party because every nutwing aspect of the Republican Party now has its separate millionaire that will support it. And that means, you know, we talk about really represent the people. Before, was the Republican Party representing people when it had controlled money and it knew who it wanted and who was the most centrist candidate and that's the person everyone saw? Now there is actually a free-for-all in virtually every Republican uh, primary about who represents the people. And the people are, you know, <laughs> they are a very strange group of uh, individuals as we are. You know, we are, you know, we are, we should be proud of our uh, eccentricity and nothing shows this better than Republican primaries. <laughs> and, and all of them are going to have money. And then the question is, who will better represent the people and what will be left of the Republican Party after the deregulative system of Citizens United gets done with them? I think that's the thing to keep your eye on. No? <laughs> uh, I, my name is Jack McKenzie. I uh, think that the general public would have been less surprised by Citizens United and by many other Supreme Court decisions if the public were allowed to see the oral argument, and uh, that is to say have cameras in the courtroom. There's nothing quite like it, as Linda knows and as I know. Uh, and it's not going to happen, it's, it seems to be less likely to happen than it used to seem to be likely. There's more opposition, there's more hostility, more indifference. The, the most benign form of it, and this is kind of pertinent to this discussion, is that justices who are fairly uh, uh, attuned to public uh, sentiment uh, think that the public would never understand what they're, what they're hearing, what they're seeing, and they would never understand that it's only part of the process, that other things go into it, the briefings and the discussions later. I don't know anybody who really believes that other than Supreme Court justice, that the public could not be made to understand that this is only part of the process. It's a very fascinating part of the process. Don't you agree? <laughs> You should come teach in a law school. <laughs> so, Jack, so, you know, I think, with, with due respect to my old friend Jack McKenzie, so, um, 
I think it's actually not true that because there are no cameras in the Supreme Court, the public is disabled from knowing what goes on there, for one thing. Uh, I mean, the audio in Citizens United, of course, was, was put out the same day. But on the court's website, every Friday, they put up the audio of the arguments, all the arguments that have taken place that week. They put up the transcripts of the arguments the same day. Uh, so people are fully able to understand what's going on. They also put up on the website all the briefs, okay? So people that want to take a little care to understand it, instead of being entertained by an hour of television, are perfectly enabled by the Supreme Court itself uh, to do that without any mediating, you know, intervention. And so, you know, I, I used to be sort of reflexively for cameras in the courtroom, of course, being a journalist, but I have come to have my doubts. And one thing that really kind of turned me was... Um, the Affordable Care Act argument. So, as you recall, Don Verrilli, the Solicitor General, took a bad sip of water as he was getting up to make his initial argument and was kind of choking and gasping for the first couple of minutes and so on. So the Republican National Committee took the audio clip of that and played it all over the country in radio ads against the Affordable Care Act, saying, listen to this, even the Obama administration's top lawyer couldn't manage to get the words out in defense of the Affordable Care Act. Okay? It was an exploitation of the availability of that audio clip. Can you imagine if, if interest groups could take little clips from TV in the courtroom? I, I'm just as happy that they can, frankly. Sorry. We're, we're told we have to stop at 11, so this will be the last question. Last oh, oh, we're oh, actually going to stop at 11? I think oh, it's, okay. it's time. Um, <laughs> so... Um, I'm going to speak not just for, on behalf of New York Historical, but the audience as well. We thank you, Robert Post, Linda Greenhouse, Kenji Yoshino, for a fascinating conversation this morning. <laughs> <laughs>